if you've been away uh, or not been with us for a while now, uh, we are going through Bibliology week four of four, uh, and we're going to be wrapping up today. It's been a big month, February. Uh, I've got to say, I've, I'm cutting my teeth in this pulpit, and, and I thank you all for that, uh, for enduring me through that, but uh, this is the only second time I've ever done anything like this consecutively, and it feels like six months for me. <laughs> it, uh, it's making my hair turn grey. And that's not a joke, if you look close. Uh, anyway, uh, we've been going about this study um, of bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible. We've been going about this by answering the question, why should I believe the Bible? And here now, after a month, I wonder what your answer would be. We started off asking this question amongst each other. So why don't you turn to the person next to you, 30 seconds back and forth, ask each other, why should I believe the Bible? And uh, have a go at answering that for yourselves and see how your answers have changed. So 30 seconds. All righty, how'd you go? Why should I believe the Bible? Did you find that your answers changed a little? Remember, uh, we talked about this in, in week one of uh, this month. And we talked about how our answers will most likely come from one of three different categories. Maybe a, a logical reason for why we believe it, an, an evidence-based reason for why we believe it, or an experiential reason for why we believe it. Logic, it just coheres, it's a unit, it's a story, it makes sense. Evidence, the manuscripts, archaeology, experience, it is proven in my life. And when I watch the news, I'm seeing this thing called sin every night, you know. I'm guessing however we answer this question, it's probably going to come from one of those three categories. And if you can hit all three, as we've tried to discuss as a group here over this month, then that is the art of persuasion. So why should I believe the Bible? Because my mummy told me to. That is a legitimate answer. It's a biblical answer. Remember that which you were taught, young Timothy. Do not despise those things. Hold fast. Well, in our final study today, I have decided to call this... Um, I was encouraged by another preacher that I like listening to to title our talk, Calling the Sons of Issachar. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you wanted to turn in your Bibles with me, to the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 12. Uh, we're going to go through that and we're going to find out who these sons of Issachar are, the tribe of Issachar. While you're turning there, um, let me read for you a bit of a light-hearted story to, to kick us off, and I think it'll be helpful uh, for our purposes this morning. As I said, light-hearted. Here we go. There was a story told of a preacher man who was out of work and he was looking for a job. And so he came up to this church committee, he responded to a notice, and there before the, the panel of church elders who were interviewing him for this new role in their church as the lead pastor, uh, they were just quizzing him on all sorts of things, and they asked him, do you have a favourite passage in the Bible? And he said, sure, yeah, it comes out of the book of Mark. Oh, what is that? It's, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, would you want to share that parable with us? And he said, I would love to. And here is what he said. Once there was a man travelling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the thorns. And the thorns sprung up and choked him. And as he went on, he didn't have any money. And he met the Queen of Sheba. She gave him a thousand talents of gold and a thousand changes of raiment. And he got into a chariot, and he drove furiously. He was driving so furiously, he drove under a juniper tree, and his hair got caught on the limb of that tree, and he hung there for many days. And the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And he ate 5,000 loaves of bread and two fishes. Then one night, while he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came and cut off his hair, and he fell on the stony ground. But as he got up and went on, it began to rain. And it rained 40 days and 40 nights. So he hid himself in a cave and he ate locusts and wild honey. Then he went on until he, heard, until he met with a servant who said, Come, let us have supper together. But he made an excuse and said, No, I won't. I have married a wife and I cannot go. 
So the servant went out into the highways and the hedges and compelled him to come. After supper, he went on and came down to Jericho. When he got there, he looked up and he saw the old queen Jezebel sitting high upon the window. And she laughed at him. So he said, throw her down. And they threw her down. Throw her down again. And they threw her down again. Seventy times seven. And all the fragments that remained, they picked up twelve baskets full. Besides women and children, they said, blessed are the peacemakers, P-I-E-C-E, P-I-E-C-E. Now whose wife do you think she will be on the judgment day? Now that story is brilliant. It's not the story of the Good Samaritan. But there's a very sharp end of irony in it. And that sharp end of irony is you actually need to know your Bible to get the joke. I wonder how many Christians or churches, and this is sad, I mean that genuinely, I wonder how many churches you could read that to and they wouldn't even bat an eyelid if you said you lifted that straight out of the second book of comicals. We are living in biblically illiterate times. How do we get here? How did we get to this point that we had to spend a month listening to some 29-year-old talk about why we should believe the Bible for a month? How did we get to this point in a society that was largely based upon and founded upon Christian values and the text and ethos of the scripture itself? That is our assignment this morning as we wrap up our study on bibliology. The content is done. This is coming at the whole question of the Bible from another angle. And if you look here in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we're going to be jumping around our Bibles today, but this is our springboard. This is our platform that we're going to launch from. And if you look here in the 12th chapter, verse 23, we're going to see a few things. You see here, uh, there are a list of of warriors, men of Israel, who were fit and battle-ready, blood-hot, ready for war. They were ready to turn the kingdom of Israel from Saul over to David, God's anointed king. We see here, for example, uh, 12 tribes of Israel. We see the first one, uh, Judah. There's 6,800 men from the tribe of Judah. We see 7,100 from the tribe of Simeon. We see 4,600 from the tribe of Levi. If you skip down a number of verses, you see uh, from Ephraim, there's 20,800 men lined up. And you see again in verse uh, 36, we see 40,000 from the tribe of Asher. And then even below that again, we see 120,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, all geared up, all battle-ready, pumped to go to war for the anointed of God, David. But there is a little tribe in here, the smallest of the lot, verse 32, and it's very interesting. Small group, just 200 men, the sons of Issachar. Makes no mention of whether or not they're warriors, battle-ready, seasoned in the art of war. No, no, No comment about that at all. But they were probably the single most important contribution to David's army out of all of this great list. Why? Because look here at 32. The sons of Issachar were men who understood the times and had a knowledge of what Israel should do. They had an understanding of the times. They had a knowledge of what God was doing in their day. Between what God was doing with King Saul, the current king of Israel, and how God was transferring the kingdom under him to David, his anointed one. So they understood that. And secondly, because they understood the times they were living in and what God was doing in their day, they then had a knowledge of what they should do, namely join the ranks and join in with what God was doing in their day. They knew their obligation to the word of God. This is our encouragement for this morning. This is our model of excellence that I would like us to follow after. Join me in a word of prayer and we'll get into our study. Our Heavenly Father, we come here this morning and we are thankful for the privilege of uh, autonomy to, 
to have religious freedom, to do what we've done this month, as countercultural as it is. We are thankful, Lord, for the leadership here that is unwavering in its commitment to the authority of Scripture, because this is, frankly, where our fellowship is. It is in your word to us, which is infallible, not in uh, the fallible words of men. For the leadership that submit to that authority, the humility that that takes, we are thankful, Lord, and we pray that you would give them grace and strength to continue in that to your glory. Father, this morning I pray that we would not be dismissed the same, but we would walk out those doors understanding the times, knowing what we're meant to do as sons and daughters of Issachar. More than that, Lord, as your children, aware of what it is that you are doing in our day and what you are calling us to do. We did not ask to be born at this time. We did not ask to be born here in this place called Australia and live here in Newcastle, and yet here we are. 21st century, 2100 years after the ascension of your son and sitting in this building on this unpopulated oversized landmass on the southern continent called Australia, we are spending our Sunday morning doing what is totally not normal today as a minority amongst bricks and mortar reading an old book. And yet it is living, it is active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. And, Father, it is to this end that we come this morning to glorify you with our minds, attention, our hearts, affection to what your word has to say in this hour as it is so desperately needed. Change us. Rock this place. Amen. Okay, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. We read Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a, a church that was the Oxford Street of its day. Um, the... To Corinthianize was actually a, a phrase for, for immorality back then. And he's writing a letter to the Corinthian church, uh, which is not a treatise on doctrine, like, say, with the Ephesians or, or the Galatians. It is a hard-hitting letter of correction and rebuke. And he makes a few comments and a few key phrases in there about wisdom, for example. And one of the things he says is, just the way he phrases this has always intrigued me. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says... Where is the philosopher of this age, the wisdom of today? So I think if we want to understand the times today here in Australia that we're living in, maybe a good way to go about this is to understand the wisdom of today and why people think the way they think. Why do we have the logic that we do? Why do we see evidence the way we see our evidence? Why do we validate our experiences the way we validate our experiences. All these questions, all of these reasons that we bring to the table as we go about answering why we should believe the Bible. Because we've been saying this whole month that this question of why I should believe the Bible is really not about the question itself as much as it is about the question, uh, who is asking the question? Questions don't ask questions, questioners ask questions and however your experience, your logic and your evidence, whatever that may be, that will determine the outcome of this question and how you go about answering it. So really that's where we've ended up, that's where we've started, that's where we're ending up. And you could lump those three categories, logic, evidence and experience, into really two categories and that is reason and experience. Reason and experience. So keep those two things in mind as we go through everything we have to say because we're going to watch the pendulum swing between those two poles. History is a great teacher, providing you can afford its tuition. And so if we want to understand our day-to-day, -day, I think the best way to go about that is to look at yesterday. How did we get here? You can't understand our times until you look at the lead-up to our times. So... All of that to say, come aboard the history train with me, please, as we jet, well, bullet train, and I mean bullet, I have bullet points here, as we bullet train through 500 years worth of history to our present day. I know that you know that I'm not joking at this point. Uh, the good news is that uh, you'll be out by 12 because, uh, at least next week, because he's back. Alrighty, here we go, all aboard, fasten your seatbelts, no rest stops, no, no halftime oranges, let's get into it, hold on the bullet train of history. Let's go. Modern times, the dominoes of 
doubt. Last week, we finished up looking at this doctrine of sola scriptura. The Bible is the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. It is supreme in its authority. It is supreme in its sufficiency for us. And that is why we, all of us, submit to its infallibility because we are fallible. This was the clarion call of the Reformation period, as we discussed, to reform the church under the governing authority of the scripture, God's word. So really the whole Reformation was this question of who is your your authority? Who is your authority? Now this all happened in a period of history called the Enlightenment. I've mentioned that plenty of times. You're probably starting to get used to what the Enlightenment was and things like that. But it was this great period of change in history between the 17th and 18th centuries that just swept across Europe, particularly uh, in the academy and in, in the intellectual scene there. So if you have the medieval days where you had, you know, the guys in the knights and jousting and I've watched a knight's tale, we probably all have. All of that kind of stuff, right? All the pretty colours and, and bizarre helmets. You come out of that medieval times and then you have this hinge period that moves then into the modern times. That hinge period there is the age of enlightenment. It was the door through which medieval times broke into modern times. It was a huge change, period of change. And what was, what was changing? Well... Amongst other things, we've just already talked about last week, the Reformation. There was a change in religion. There was the religious change, 1517. That uh, frustrated Catholic monk, Luther, writes his 95 theses, walks up to all saints, nails them on the door, and he challenges papal authority to return to the authority of sola scriptura, sola scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. All of those different things that you and I hold dear today came about from this movement called the Reformation. There was a religious change. Secondly, there were changes in the sciences. We had, for example, a number of years after Luther, 1543, Nicholas Copernicus published his work about the celestial spheres, the Copernican Revolution. We talk about that. No longer um, were we talking about a cosmos where everything revolves around us. We revolve around the sun huge mind-blowing change everyone had been hanging out with this ptolemaic cosmology for over a thousand years from way back near jesus day and we've had somebody like this guy copernicus come along and flip that all around on its head huge change in the sciences we also had the and so not only the religious not only the science we also had the socio-political changes for example we had the 30 years war across europe between 1618 to 1648 and a century later we had the Uh, French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars and things like that. So it was a huge, huge period of change. Everything was changing. Science, religion, politics, social life. And it was also a big philosophical period of philosophical change as well. The Enlightenment gave birth to a new wisdom of this age. And it all began with the French philosopher by the name of René Descartes. With all the change that was going on in the Enlightenment age, I had to, I, was, I forgot to put it up, I had to drag my poor wife around Paris and we visited all these dead guys and I took a photo next to Descartes' uh, tomb and I thought, I'm going to use this one day and I forgot, but um, <laughs> here we are. That's why I took you there, Julie. Because he's, he's an important dude. He, he had a huge effect on, on our study of bibliology today. Because all of this change was going on, religious, sciences, all of that stuff, and basically people were like, we can't, we can't believe anything anymore. How do we even think? I can't trust anything. I don't know anything to think. Everything's changing. I'm in doubt. So he was a thinker, and he thought, if everything's in doubt, we need to harness certainty again. He was actually a Christian man, although it'd be interesting to see what he did. How do you go about finding certainty in an age of doubt? Well, he did not let doubt defeat him. He went about a project of doubting. He sat down in front of his fire one night and he doubted his senses. He doubted everything he learned as a boy in church. He doubted everything he'd heard in school. He doubted all of his mathematics. He was a mathematician. Doubt, 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 doubt. Doubt couldn't, couldn't believe the hand he saw in front of his face. Doubted everything. How do you get... What bedrock do you hit when you doubt everything? Where does a, what, what, what train stop do you get off at when you doubt them all? There was one thing he couldn't doubt. 
and that was that he was doubting. I know this sounds abstract, trust me, we're going somewhere. He could not doubt that he was doubting. So, he started at that point. And this is, you may not have heard the name Descartes, but I bet you you've heard of his dictum. I doubt, therefore I think. I think, therefore I am. I doubt, therefore I think. I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. I might doubt everything in the world, but I cannot doubt that I am in doubt. I am, in, I am certain of my doubt. If I'm doubting, then I'm thinking. And if I'm thinking, then I'm a person who's thinking. That's the way he moved out of this rabbit hole of doubt. By the way, this is what the movie, the, Mat the trilogy, The Matrix, is all based on this stuff. The Wachowski brothers who went about writing that, sense perception, do we really know if we're in The Matrix? It was all inspired by this bloke. Take the blue pill or the red pill and see how far the rabbit hole goes, you know? So whether or not you actually know this dude and what he had to say, we've all been educated in this way of thinking. Do I, do I believe that I'm a butterfly dreaming I'm a human, you know? All that kind of stuff. This is what we're talking about here. What's the point of all of this? The point of all of this is modern times in the philosophy world began with a whole new way of thinking and it was that the very first principle of everything is your thought. Reason only. Reason is the very first principle of inquiry. No more sola scriptura. Jesus loves me, this I know, for my thoughts, they tell me so. Descartes, the Christian man, was henceforth known as the father of rationalism. Hot on his heels came another guy, the, the Dutch Jewish philosopher named Baruch Spinoza. In 1617, 1677, he published a book which just gutted the Bible of any sort of supernatural claim. No walking on water, no dead Jesus coming back alive, no supernatural Jesus to begin with. It just eviscerated out of the text any notion of the supernatural. Why? Because it was unreasonable. You don't go for a, an afternoon walk and just walk across <laughs> Newcastle Harbour, do you? Because you sink. It was unreasonable to him. What he did was he picked up what Descartes was putting down and he ran with reason first and he took it to his text and he gutted it of anything he thought was unreasonable. Spinoza became known as the father of anti-supernaturalism. So if we just take pause, we're on our journey, we're on our bullet train express, we're cranking the gears, we're now up to our, our, our cruising speed. If we just want to gather now around, around that little lunch cart, uh, have a coffee and just touch base, where are we tracking here? We've been asking this question, why should I believe the Bible? Because we assume that a lot of people don't believe the Bible today. Why? Can you start to see now where in history these ideas, these doubts about the believability of the Bible are coming from? The ridiculousness of a miracle? The idea that reason reigns supreme? There is a history behind why people think the way they think. You don't wake up one day and have the thoughts you do. You are the product of your environment and what you thought. And we have almost no reflection on the history of thought today. It's a great tragedy in the church as well as outside of the church. This is where we're tracking, okay? Back to your seats, train rides going on. Let's go to our next, uh, next man in history, David Hume. After Spinoza came another guy called David Hume. He disagreed with the rationalists because he said, uh, we cannot really doubt, we cannot know uh, anything, and he went back to the old idea of doubting, so he doubted doubting and all the rest. It was a whole mess of confusion. That's why he became known as the father of scepticism. He didn't begin with reason, but he did begin with something, and it was experience. Rationalists began with their experience, and then along came these guys, like Dave Hume, who started, amongst other things, the empirical movement, but the senses and the experience, that was what he was known for as the father of scepticism. Then along on his heels came this guy called Immanuel Kant, a German guy. He's perhaps the greatest, he's had the greatest impact on our thinking today. Uh, whether or not you've known the name, you are a product of this man and what he had to say. Because he looked across to the Frenchman, Descartes, and he said he's tried to hold on to his mind but he's lost his grip on reality or experience. And then he looked over the channel to the Brit and he goes, well, he's lost his grip on his mind to try and hold on to his experience of reality. They're both wrong. I'm going to hold on to both. And what happened with the Kant? He collapsed under his own ambitious weight of trying to hold on to both. Why? Because the way he went about all of this was to split 
everything about reality into two. The metaphysical or the supernatural world, the beliefs, the superstitions, the religions, the gods, the miracles, all of that is over there in a category that you can only believe and have faith in. And the other part of his existence was the natural, the physical. And it's only there that facts and truth come from. That's why when you go to the academy today, if you ever operate in the belief sphere, not popular. We only operate in this sphere. This is where the reason comes from. It's only from this space. That's why if you go and talk with your logic and your evidence and your experience to your friends today who don't believe and you're trying to talk to them from this space, they're going to be like, not interested. Show me Jesus in a test tube and I'll start to believe. Put the creator into your creation and I'll start to believe. I mean, green doesn't have a sound. It's totally confused, right? What is the taste of pink? You can't go there. But anyway, this is the way the world is operating. Knowledge and truth and facts and reason and experience can only be validated from the natural world. So Kant became known as the father of agnosticism. The problem with old Kant was he was a good Lutheran church man. And he said, you cannot actually know. That's a belief. Put it in your corner. You can have that private belief if you want, but don't try and talk about it in public. This is why, by the way, when you have friends who come to church and they're really awkward with singing. It's, it's awkward because religion should be a private thing, not something you do in public and sing with everyone. People are awkward with public worship because it's a private thing, because this kind of thinking has just become the norm today. But again, to take a tea break, where were the sons of Issachar? Where were the men, who, men and women of God who understood the times, who stood up, who looked at Emmanuel and said, no, Emmanuel, that is wrong. That is not true. Because no eye has seen, no ear has heard, that's experience. Nor has entered into the heart of man, that is reason, what God has prepared for those who love him. God has revealed things to us through his spirit. Emmanuel, you're wrong. Where were the men and women of Issachar to stand up and say that to Emmanuel? That's what the church should have been saying. And the old preacher says, when you wed Christianity to the spirit of the age, you become a widow in one generation, and that's exactly what happened. Because look who came next. Along came the son of an army chaplain in Berlin named Friedrich Schleidermacher. And he saw that Christianity was losing credibility in the academic elites, you know, because it's operating there in that belief space. And so he tried to recover Christianity and he made this comment, well I'm not quoting him, I'm paraphrasing, basically it doesn't matter if Christianity is true or false, it doesn't matter if you can reason Christianity because that's not what Christianity is about, it's all about, and tell me if this sounds familiar, it's all about what I believe, it's what's in here, that's where the truth of Christianity comes from, it's just all this, it doesn't matter if it's true or false. Schleidermacher became known as the father of liberalism. He was trying to help Christianity, but he only stabbed another hole in the already leaking bucket. Because the whole issue is that if man's beginning point wasn't reason, then it was experience, and that's all he did, was he still had the beginning point with man, namely his experience of God. And it was really from this liberal movement that the damage was really done on the Bible itself. Because up until this point in history, the people that were assaulting the integrity of the Bible, who were they? Emperors of Rome, Diocletian. Men who would feed you to the animals if you believed in this text. Now, for the first time in human history, who was assaulting the integrity of the word of God? Professors in Bible colleges. Theologians, Christian men. Those guys that everyone points to and never knows their name. But they say, who's they? It's these kind of dudes in the academies. Now we had the educated elites telling us this is a load of garbage. Gave rise to other men, Richard Simon, David Strauss, Rudolf Boltman, walked down through history. You can trace this all the way to today with the men and women that are still alive in colleges. Let me tell you, these men did to the Bible what taxidermists did to dead cats. They took a cat... They gut it, they took out all its innards, they stuffed it full of sawdust, they set it back up, they put it on the shelf and they said, look at how lifelike it is. And became proud. 
It's a dead thing. They just, they just ripped out the heart of the gospel. They made God in the image of man instead of man in the image of God. That's what you end up with, by the way, quoting, now I'm quoting word for word, the former bishop of Harvard Divinity School. We need to move towards a non-theistic view of God. If you can help me with that, talk to me later, please. Then along came another bloke called August Camus, who was a French philosopher. He was known as the father of sociologism. What, have have I got that wrong? There it is, close. Sociologism, social sociology, social studies, all of the rest. And now thanks to men like Kant, he didn't even operate in that belief space of the supernatural or the metaphysical. He was only just, this was his world. He was only operating in the natural world of the here and the now and the chemicals and the trees and the grass and all the rest. It was all physical. It wasn't cool and it still isn't cool to go to the academy today and talk about anything to do with God. We have Kant to thank for that. Now, next, who came? Charles Darwin. We've heard of this guy, right? 1859, publishes The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. In 1871, he also published the book The Descent of Man. And you can see how the seeds of Darwinian naturalistic evolution or evolutionism had been planted all along, right? The pencil sketch was drawn. He came along, he did his discoveries, he found out with his voyages, you know, a lot of really good stuff. But he just went over naturalism in bold marker. The seed was already there, the pencil sketch was already there. He just canonized the word of the holy book of nature. And here's what's interesting on that point. It took Christian thinkers since the inception in the canon of the Bible, there around the the close of the 4th century, 1,300 years to develop a robust Christian theology of all of reality, of the world, of the natural and the supernatural. It took naturalistic, non-Christian philosophers 200 years to develop their canon, their holy book from nature. 200 years. You see, you need little time to explore when you make your world so small. Then along came Karl Marx, 1848, published the Communist Manifesto. Now we're only operating in the natural world. I mean, that's just... If Calvary Chapel was back then, it would totally be unpopular already. So we're we're talking not even the 1900s yet, and we're already unpopular at this stage here for believing in this text. He dominated the world of sociology, economics, religion is just a means to an economic end. He became known as the father of communism. Next, Friedrich Nietzsche, 1844 to 1900. Finally, the turn of the 20th century stood up Nietzsche and said what everyone had been thinking for so long and finally he had the courage to say it along with the courage to have that (laughs) moustache. There's there's writings that say women were scared of him because of his moustache, poor bloke. He stood up and he said this, God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. Nietzsche became known as the father of atheism. Having recognised the death of God, having stated what everyone was thinking all the way through period, this period of history, he basically uh, went on to ask this question, how shall we, the murderers of all, of all murderers, live with ourselves? Shall we ourselves not become God? Just to appear worthy of it. This was eerie, by the way. This was freaky. This was strangely prophetic. Why? Because when you take your place as God, what kind of a man do you get next? Have a look. Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, Mussolini, Mao Zedong. I've only picked a handful. Humanism is the dead end of atheism. And there's something about 38 million dead in World War I, 60 million dead in World War II, 1 million dead in the Koreas, and 2 million dead in Vietnam, Holocaust gulags and mustard gas-bombed orphanages that will rip away any idea that man is inherently a good thing. This is history. Time is the great expositor of truth. And if the dominoes of doubt in the modern times has taught us anything, 
is the hard and horrific lesson that when man makes his reason and his evidence the starting point, you end up being unreasonable and living in the chaos of your own reckoning. Indeed, that's literally how Nietzsche went, locked away in an asylum for 11 years, shrieking verses of scripture he learned as a child from his mother, believing to be Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad. And then he died at 56 years old. So just as reason and experience from the enlightened thinkers shut the door on the medieval ages, so the logical dead end of atheism shut the door on modern times in the reason of insanity and the chaos of the tyrannical 20th century. So the modern times are done. They finished up last century. And what is the plight of a dying man? Where do we go next? We go to where we are today. Postmodern times. When a man is dying, he begins his self-help homeopathy remedies. I love this Modernism, I'm a genius, postmodernism. Well, the category of a genius is a theoretically untenable cultural construct. I'm a genius. <laughs> this is the time we live in today. After the modern times came postmodern times, post after, hence we are here. And you and I are living in that today. This is was, this was the generation my parents grew up in, or perhaps some of you here grew up in. We were sick of the bloodshed. We were sick of the ideologues. We were sick of the dictatorships. We were sick of the totalitarian regimes. We were sick of the war. We were sick of authorities. We were sick, certainly, of the authority of the church and of God. We had had enough. We were so reactive that we were, um, that we were discontent with any sort of limitation on our freedom. Even the idea of definitions was a problem. Don't tell me I'm a man if I don't want to be called a man. Who are you to tell me who I can marry? You see, this is what we're talking about today. It's very hot today. But it's all coming out of this when you look at history. No status quo, no orientation sexually, no identity of your gender. Truth is in the eye of the beholder, not in the archaic books of old. Because we're pragmatists today. We do what we feel and we feel what we do. All the while singing Frankie Sinatra, I did it my way. And why not? If there's no sola scriptura, there's sola homo. Man is the sole infallible rule of faith for his own life. Man is the measure of all things. His reason and his experience regulate everything. But as G.K. Chesterton said, the, sad, the, the tragedy of disbelief in God is not that man ends up believing in nothing. Alas, it's much worse. He'll end up believing in anything, even the guy looking back from the mirror. We speak of human rights today, but do we even know what it, the right is to be a human? We have faculties of humanism, and yet we don't necessarily know what a human is. With everything we've looked at this morning so far in history on our bullet express train, are we really surprised that in our postmodern times today, probably the biggest issue we face is identity? National borders, nationalism, political factions. To desacralize God is to desacralize man because man is a being made in the image of God. And if God is like the sun and if man is like the shadow, then when you take away the sun, the shadow is gone. Human identity, who? Who we are as people is bound up in who God is as the creator. And not only that, but so is purpose. Why are we here today is bound up with why we have been placed here today. And when you lose God, you lose your who and your why. You lose your identity and your purpose. You see a graphic picture of this in Isaiah 44. A man cuts down a tree and he uses part of it to make a fire. He uses it. The other half he uses to, to, to make this idol and then bow down and worship it. Half he burns, half he worships. Graphic picture of what's going on today. Sure, you may not be worshipping trees. Well, maybe not all of us. That's why God says in Isaiah 44, 18 to 19, they know nothing. They understand nothing. 
Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has knowledge or understanding. Folks, any stigma can lick a good dogma and that is exactly where we've ended up today after 500 years worth of history. And I know all of this sounds drab. Don't come to church to hear a history lecture. You could get on YouTube and listen to somebody else give you their opinion on this. But if I can say this, I think that's part of the problem. We've just surveyed on our express train 500 years worth of human history. Where were the men and women of God to stand up and say, this is wrong? We had the odd boy here and there, men like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who fought against the excesses of naturalism coming into the church, and I think that's part of the reason why he went to an early grave at the age of 58. Where were the sons of Issachar who stood up, who understood the day they were living in, who understood the times they were living in, and knew what God's word had called them to do? Truly, it was not until the evangelical movement of the last 60 years, this is the period you and I are in, that you, the guys that you and I read who are still alive today, that is how long it has taken for us as a church to really, as a biblically committing church, to really step up to the platform and start responding seriously to all of these excesses that have been going on ever since the Enlightened period. It's taken that long. Men like Carl F. Henry, Norman Geisler, my current professor, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, Earl Radmacher, these men who got together in 1978 to draft up the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. It's not infallible, of course not. It is a creed that, that men and women or churches or institutions can refer to as, as a litmus test for orthodoxy today, or at least for evangelicalism. What do we believe about the doctrine of inerrancy? You should all get online and have a read of that. It's very good. This is when the apologists began, men like Francis Schaeffer. He, he's writing books like, He is there and he is not silent. This is when groups started like Navigators, Crusades, Young Life, Youth for Christ. All of these things are relatively new that started stepping up and responding to these excesses and abuses within the church. And let me go on the record and say this. You know, any, I believe any church that denies the inerrancy of Scripture... I'm very confident that you give them two generations or so and they'll end up denying the deity of Christ. Liberalism is a landslide in the mass of atheistic humanism. We have seen this over and over and over and over again in our generation today and in previous generations past. Theological debates come and go, folks. Free will, the end times, creation, limited or unlimited atonement. But this issue of bibliology that we have spent a month studying now is the litmus test, at least for me personally, for my fellowship and where I'm going to break bread. The, the inspiration, the revelation, the transmission, the canonization, the infallible inerrancy of God's word is an issue that every single generation of men and women will have to rise up and give an answer to. If you haven't yet, you boys are young, you've just graduated Sunday school. Welcome to Adults Church. Um, it's been a baptism of Bible here, no doubt, but whether or not you've had to answer these questions for yourself, whether or not we have here in our own places, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we are, you will. You will. And what are you going to say when you have to stand up and make your mark? Every generation has to go through and ask this question. Why? Because of where it all began. Turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of time. As you're turning there, you recall the beginning of John's Gospel, John chapter 1. It reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then when you flick to Genesis 1, we see, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. How? By his Word, it says, And God said, Let there be light. And God said, And God said. You see that all the way through Genesis 1 through to Genesis 2. Then we get to Genesis 3. And look at this. First verse. The serpent said to the woman, here are the very first recorded words of Satan in the Bible, did God really say? First words, did 
God really say? In other words, let's just talk about your theology of bibliology. Let's just have a casual conversation about what you think about the Word of God. Can you really be sure of what God says? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die. There's the doubt. That just challenged the authority of God's word. You shall not die. There is the lie, totally contrary to what God said in Genesis 2.17, in the day you eat of it, you shall die. Verse 6, the woman looks at this fruit of the tree and she saw it was pleasing to her eye. There is the reason and also desirable for gaining wisdom. There's the reason. And she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. There is the experience. Reason. Experience. It's all here, folks. Modern times, postmodern times, all here in the beginning of time. This is where it all began. The very first assault on the integrity of God's word was what collapsed human existence and all of creation into chaos. So just like Descartes, which began with doubt, Satan began with doubt in the garden. Did God really say? And it ended with the broken, sin-wrecked, fallen, groaning creation that you and I are beneficiaries of here how is it damaged look there is theological damage they were banished from the garden in the presence of the lord that's why there was this dividing wall in the temple throughout the old testament that's why they had sacrifices that's why they had mediators priests slaughtered lambs because they had to have mediation now because there was a separation there was psychological damage they were ashamed so they hid psychologists got their profession from that who among us is not insecure in some way? There is sociological damage. The woman gave, you gave to me, God. She made me do it. There's fighting. What church, what home, what workplace, what family does not have this going on? There is ecological damage. The ground was cursed and it is to this very day by the sweat of your brow you will work. Theological, psychological, sociological, ecological, that is, tr that is creation. And it was wrecked. Ever since the fall of Genesis 3, human reason and human experience have been damaged. Not destroyed. We can still reason. We still have our experience. But they have been damaged. Paul makes this very clear in Romans 1. All of humanity has known the truth of God, but it has been confused. It has been corrupted. It has been tainted and suppressed. That is why we worship trees. And as archaic and primitive as Isaiah 44 sounds to our ever-enlightened ears, the fact that modern man is more concerned today about saving whales than killing the babies, the fact that we're more concerned about what the environment is doing and whether or not you agree with Darwinian evolution in the academy as a litmus test for reason itself is proof of the fact that we really aren't that much different. We may have an otherwise improved means, sure, we have progressed. But to what ends are these means taking us? As Dio Moody once said, you send a kid who's stealing nuts and bolts from a railway track to university and you put him out in the world again, he'll steal the whole railway track. Postmodern man is always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, this is the issue, it's knowledge. People are literally like in this ocean of life, just getting tossed to and fro in their little insecure dinghy, trying to herald it as a ship. Without a paddle, without a compass, navigating the high seas, not knowing who they are, their identity, not knowing why they are here, the goal and the purpose for which they're floating. They have no lighthouse beckoning and calling them, no guidance, nothing. Coleridge said, Oh, if men could learn from history what lessons it might teach us, but passion and party blind our eyes, and the light which experience gives us is a lantern on the stern which shines only on the waves behind us. 
We've just come full circle, folks. We're back to where we began in our bibliology study four weeks ago. Why should I believe the Bible? Who are you that's asking the question? Questions don't ask questions. Questioners ask questions. And nothing said from this pulpit over this month will be convincing unless we are people who have an allowance in our belief set that God does exist and if God does exist then it is possible for him to have a word to us. If you've already cut that off then when you start within the beginning God you're going to have a lot of problems all the way through the end of Revelation 22 if God doesn't exist. Who are you? Why you are here? Finally the fullness of time the word of light. Please turn with me now to John 1. And let me say, I know many of you here are secure in your faith. That's why you're here. You know who you are. You know why you're here. And you praise God for that every day. But we don't ever done and did the gospel. You never graduate from the ABCs of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and why you're here. Paul says we are being saved. It is a process. Justification, sanctification, glorification. We are progressively saved. This is a process. You are captured securely, don't misunderstand that but this is a process and so you never done and did the gospel so wash yourself with this even if you're not questioning this today wash yourself with the truth of who God is and what he has done for you verse 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was God in the beginning through him all things were made without him was made nothing that has been made without him Nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And in verse 6 we see, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. So you can see now, we're moving through history. In the beginning was the word, Genesis, Genesis, Genesis. Then we see here, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. First century, verse 6, we're going through history. Here we are now, John 1. He was John the Baptist, not John the Apostle writing. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. Here it is again. What is the purpose of light? Why do we have light? We have light so that we can see, so that we can understand, so that we can have knowledge of something. That's why we have light, so that we can believe. John the Baptist wasn't the light. He was only a witness to the light. The word, the true light, that is the light. The word, the logos. He was the light. John was just a witness to that light. And he came to enlighten everyone. Everyone. Not some, everyone. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, those who suppress the truth are without excuse because he's given light to everyone in the whole world. So we've come from the beginning of time through creation all the way down throughout history. We've looked at Isaiah. We've come through the prophets now. And here we are tracking into the New Testament We see here, verse 14, who is this word, who is this true light? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who? Verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Why? We know it, and it's called John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son into the world that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you see what we have just done with, what, with, with where we've tracked, with what we've looked at from modern times, postmodern times, the beginning of time, and now here in what Paul in Galatians 4.4 4 says is the fullness of time when God sent forth his son into this world, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Where are we? What have we just done? What have we just experienced? The pendulum swing of godless history is between man's reason and man's experience. What does God do in the fullness of time? He sends forth his son, who is what? The logos, the reason, the word, the intelligence, the rationale, the reason. That is what logos, when you do the word study there, means. He came in, how, why, who, from, what, where? From the experience of the Father's heart of love. God so loved the world, he sent his reason back in to reorient the course that was deviated from Eden. The word of truth. I have come to testify to the truth. Those on the side of truth hear my voice and they believe me. Who? The one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The word reorients us back to Eden, where it all began. 
In John's Gospel, we have the first century revelation of the Word, the Logos, the reason, the mind of God became flesh in Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the experience of the Father's love for his creation. John 3.16 He was dispatched from the heavenlies in glory. Philippians 2 humbled himself, becoming a man to the point of death. This is the fullness of time. Not modern times, not postmodern times. The fullness of time. John 1.11 He came to that which was not his own, but his own did not receive He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And here at long last, the rubber of reason hits the road of experience. God is not just a theory to be reasoned from this book. He is a person to experience and be in relationship with. If you don't have that, this book is a dead cat on a shelf stuffed with sawdust. To those who did receive him, God has given us the capacity, that which separates us from animals, who we are, made in the image of God. He restores that, the damage. He restores that damage. He gives us a mind of reason. Colossians, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2 talks about the natural man and super, or the, the spirit-filled man. He gives us a mind to reason, to understand the things of God, a heart to feel and experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. This is the light that came into the world. Friends, Jesus Christ, the word became flesh. This is ground zero of Christianity. This is ground zero of Christian theism. He is our philosophical first principle, not our experience, not our reason. Jesus Christ and the reason and experience he then imparts to us. He is the beginning point of all things. He is the terra firma, the anchor, the rock, the starting point for who you are and for why you are here. When you look at him, you see for the first time who you really are. I love that 5th century prayer of Augustine, that I may know thee, that I may know myself. That's Christian doctrine in one sentence. When you see who he is as creator God, then you see yourself as creature. But more than that, if you receive him as creator God, then you see him not only just as your creator, you understand who he is in light of Jesus. He's your saviour and you have the right to become a child of God. That is profound. That is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his one and only son into this world so that we may have that reorientation to Eden, what we lost This is the glory of the gospel, by the way. We talk about it a lot at church, the gospel, the gospel. The manifestation of the gospel in your life is not that things are cool and easy now. It's the fact that you're in that dinghy still because we're in this life and it's broken. But you can weather the storm. The glory of the gospel is manifest in your life because and when and through those seasons you can ride out the storm. Why do I say that? Because it's not about your logic. It's not about your evidence. It's not about your experience. It's all about him. You are no longer the means to your own ends. He is the means to your ends. That is your creative. You can go play cricket with a glass cup if you want. It's not good for the cup. When you, when you take a glass, a glass cup and you drink it water, you're using it for what it was designed for. And when you understand who we are as people and what we have been designed for, then all of a sudden you know what Jesus spoke about in John 10.10 when he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is your creative purpose, your design. It's not restrictive. It's just appropriate. Seek the truth of God's word in Christ, in him who stands before us now, calling us, he gives us answers to the who and to the why, to the identity and to our purpose. The songs of our time don't lie, by the way. You can run 
through the cities, you can climb the highest mountains, you can crawl and scale the city walls, but you'll hit that chorus every time and scream out, I still haven't found what I'm looking for because you're looking in the wrong places. The world today is looking for modern answers to a Genesis issue that has a first century solution. And as long as we keep looking forward to our own capabilities, we will always end up in want. It's been a big month uh, this month for all of us, I think. Uh, but I hope you've been challenged by this study on bibliology. I know I certainly have. I hope you'll never be the same again. Um, leaving our time here today, whether you're just coming face to face with this for the first time, whether you've been believing this stuff longer than I've been alive. My prayer for this month has been, in the very least, even if you forget all the detail, that we will remember that there are answers to our questions, good answers. Like the sons of Issachar, we have a higher calling though, and that is to know the times that we are living in and to understand what we are to do about that. Let's not remain content in ignorance, which is actually unfaithfulness. We're called to, to know the times, we're called to give an answer, we're called to take captive every philosophy that, that rises itself against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Learn from the mistakes of Descartes, from Kant, from Darwin, from the Nietzsche's of our day, stand flat-footed and speak the truth and speak it in love because a love, a truth spoken in love without, because a statement spoken with love without truth is sin, and a statement spoken in truth without love is sin. Make sure that we are doing this and going about this and evangelizing without compromise, but in the model of our Lord Jesus Christ, who did it in love. This is the bridge, by the way, between reason and experience. The gospel restores that to us. So put your hand to the plough, folks. We talked about James last, uh, last year. We talked about James. You've got that metaphor of the farmer in James 5. Put your hand to the plough. It's going to be blistered. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. You're going to sweat. That's what this life is all about. You're not promised ease. Look at Jesus. And feed yourself with our text here. With the word of God, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Bibliology, friends, does not start and end here. It really begins next week and we actually get into the Bible itself. Win the man, not the argument. Answer the questioner, not the question. Let's pray and let's thank our Lord for his preserved word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you now for this time. We thank you for this month. Uh, that we've spent studying bibliology. Uh, what a benefit it is. What a privilege it is. What a gift. What a preciousness it is to, to be entrusted in this church, in this little embassy uh, amongst the, the chaos of Babylon, the insecurities of Babylon and, and everything, all the dust and everything around us, Lord, to be here entrusted with the oracle of your word, your sacred word. It is an honour that we behold Father, bind it on our hands, bind it on our hearts, bind it on our heads, bind it on our homes that we may follow in the footsteps of our Saviour Jesus, your Son, who in that desert wielded the sword of the Spirit in masterful fashion. Your word is truth and it is the only weapon we have in our arsenal, that Ephesians 6 warrior's arsenal is your word. So it's really not about us at all. Even our breath is prayer. Depend on you, Father, that is our prayer, that we may do that and start in your word. That is how we cut through the lie of the serpent. We saw how Eden tried and Eve tried and failed that in Eden. Yes, the Lord said, but Lord, she caved. And we do that every day. We are a testament to her humanity. And yet we look to him, Jesus, Matthew, for who says that man cannot live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, not that fruit, not the bread, your word. That is our calling as Christ ones, to nourish ourselves with this. Father, we pray for personal security. 
We pay for corporate security, individually, collectively. Security in our knowledge of who we are as your people, as your children, and the purposes for which you have called us to, the who's and the why's, each one of us here. And it's different, it'll look different, but Lord, capture us in our vocations, in our families, in our allotments. May we know who you are, who we are, why we are here, and what it is you're calling us to do. That is it. That is Christianity. Keep us securing that, Lord. And let us be sticklers for doctrine. We don't talk about this stuff. We don't spend an hour here where most don't on a Sunday morning because we like to bore people. It's because it is so important. Let us be sticklers for doctrine, dogmatic about inerrancy, unashamed of biblical fundamentalism in the highest rank Lord, as we go about all of this, I just pray that we would do it in a heart framed with grace, love. Because that is the bridge that's missing. It's not the reason only. It is the reason and the experience. It is the heart, the love. That's how... That's why you came. May we do that, Lord, to love you with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, with all our strength, not either or. That's the mistake of the world, with all in one. To this end, Father, we pray you have called us. And to this end, Father, we now pray as we close. And that is to your Son, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Amen.